Thank you for saying that because I want people to really get that. You just said two things that are incredibly profound, incredibly insightful that people should really grasp. One is who gives a shit what you believe or what you value demonstrates it with your behavior. That's number one, which is what you just said, right? If you don't take the action, who gives a crap? You've got to take the action. You've got to make it a truth by, by living it. It's the action that counts. But the other thing you said that I think is really important is it's not just the action, because when you take the action, your mind says, lost. I've now lost something. And what you're approaching it with is gain. How is it making my life better? And I think there's so few people who grasp that, that how can living this value make my life better? How can that actually give me something I actually want more? than that. Hi, this is Joshua Spodek, and this is Leadership in the Environment. You're not the only one who cares about your impact enough to act. You're part of a global community undeterred by people saying, if others don't change first, then what I do doesn't matter, and other excuses. We've read the science. We can do this. This show is about personal responsibility, acting, and improving your life by your values. As guest after guest says, the challenge was hard, but thank you for getting me to do it. I wish I'd done it earlier. Listen on for leaders to inspire you. Hear their struggles. And then act. Go to joshuaspodick.com slash podcast to commit to a public, personal challenge of your own. You're not alone, and you don't have to wait for others. When last we heard, in Dove's second episode, he had over-delivered on avoiding driving his car and proposed a third episode considering getting rid of the car. I've wondered for nearly a year how he'd follow through. Was he driving the thing? Was he not driving it? Had he gotten rid of it? Had he not gotten rid of it? Didn't really know. For that matter, most people consider bringing a mug to a cafe with them too much. Even thinking about getting rid of a car felt to me like more than I would have expected from a guest. And it's not just a car. In Dove's case, it's a Jaguar that it meant that he had arrived from his childhood growing up in a ghetto. So I'm as curious as you. Has he gotten rid of it? Has he kept driving it? Most people can contort themselves into justifying almost any kind of pollution if they try. So I don't know. What do you expect of Dove? Also, before going to the conversation, I want to point out that bringing a mug is too much when you tell people what they should do. That is, managing, imposing on them, extrinsic motivation, as opposed to starting with what they care about, which creates the possibility of leading them. That is, helping them do what they wanted to before you came around, but couldn't figure out how to do. So let's see what people are capable of when you lead them by starting with what they care about, not imposing on them. Welcome to the Leadership in the Environment podcast. I'm here with, this is Joshua Spodek. I'm here with Dove Barron. Dove, how are you doing? Good, Josh. Excellent. I'm excited to be here again. Always good to chat with you, mate. Me too. I stumbled over my words, even saying my own name, because this podcast, you've been one of the few, you're now on for a third time. And you're actually, this is a very long time since the beginning, since we first recorded. And I've been, you're one of the people that I talk, and your episodes are one of the ones, or two of the ones that I talk about more than anyone else, because you're, first of all, you on your own, you have an enthusiasm and a, and a gusto life that, like, <laughs> that, that alone would be enough. But also, you took this to such a level I mean, you considered getting rid of a car and I'm, that's, I'm, I'm like, where's this going to go? And it came not from a place of coercion or, or like trying to be like others or like reacting to others, but totally inside. And so I'm really curious. I'm on the edge of my seat as to where it's gone with that, but I'm also, I want to, I want to tease myself and tease the listeners <laughs> of how have things gone you, in the meantime. You, you seductress you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So I want to hear about the Jag, but I also want to hear just how things have changed with regard to what we talked about on the podcast and anything else also, but how has it developed, if at all? Well, what is it? Oh, yeah. Your thoughts and behavior with regard to the environment, but also your relationship with it and and with yourself with regard to these things. Yeah, I think that, you know, I, you know, as you and I have talked about before, I am a very political person. I'm very aware of the political climate, (laughs) which is an interesting term in and of itself. (laughs) 
political climate, which is definitely going, the political climate is also going through some climate change. <laughs> so I'm, I'm kind of fascinated by this, this radical left and radical right of the environment, not just politically, but of the environment, meaning absolute, complete climate denial and an absolute, you know, with the new green policy and all these kinds of things. It's just a very, very interesting time uh, when I look at uh, documentaries about, you know, polar bears wandering into places and go, holy crap, you know, they are really moving down. And I live, I live on, on the coast, but the mountains are just across the, the inlet. And this is Vancouver, if I remember right. In Vancouver, yeah. Uh-huh. And, you know, the, uh, the bobcats and the bears are coming further and further down the mountain all the time, you know. So, you know, we are dynamically aware of the, the change in climate and the impact of it. And so for me, it's kind of, I kind of can't get away from it. But, and this is an interesting thing, and I actually did a video on this. I said one of the misconceptions of life, one of the misconceptions of personal development, and you'll hear it all the time, is surround yourself with like-minded people. And I always say, please don't surround yourself with like-minded people. They're terrible people to surround yourself with. And people go, why? And I go, let me just explain to you how social media works. When you click on something, you send a message to Facebook indirectly through the algorithm that tells Facebook, give me more of this. So you are always surrounded by opinions that are just like yours. You're being fed every day. If you're a lefty, you're getting lefty lefty information. If you're a righty, you're getting righty information. So whatever wherever you fall on the spectrum of your beliefs, you're always getting surrounded by that. And we surround ourselves with people who believe what we believe. And this is a problem because we never stretch ourselves to see what other people are thinking and wonder why do they think that way and how, what might be right in that? What, what have I not considered? What have I not looked at? So for when I'm on Facebook, I will click on Fox News. I will mm. click on climate deniers. I will click on and I will read those things because I want to have a broader understanding of all those things. And I think that climate change and the environment and those kinds of things, you know, I mean, I don't know if there's 12 years left. I mean, people, you know, we've heard that. that the headline, yeah, it's out there. The headline, yeah. I mean, I, I don't think the planet's going to disappear in 12 years. Uh, and actually, I think if, if we disappear, certainly the planet won't. There's evidence of that because there's been extinctions, multiple extinctions. We know the planet itself will survive, but we may be destroying the atmosphere. So I'm always dynamically aware of that. And I think that that creates an awareness in me, but I want to understand the other side and the rhetoric and the the way that something emotionally is presented in a very logical and rational way that seems completely freaking crazy to me. But I go, oh, so on the other side of that, they must be looking at this stuff and going, well, this must seem pretty crazy to them. Oh, yeah. Have you interviewed Jonathan Haidt or do you know Jonathan Haidt? Has you read any of his stuff? No. Nope. So he's a professor here at NYU and he's also now he's really big because uh, his book has gotten really big. and He's done all the TED Talks and stuff. And he espouses a lot of this. And because of him, I've put in a lot of effort into getting different people in the podcast. Like I, I reached after Trump got elected, I put it on my ink column. I said, if you voted for Trump, I'd like to talk to you, which my editor was like, that's not what we do here. <laughs> but I ended up making some really good friendships with people that, you know, there were, one was in the Midwest, no, they're both in California. Anyway, they're out West and made really good friendships. And so I invited one of them back to be on the, on, to be on this podcast. And fabulous. Now, although she described herself as a green conservative or green Republican. So as far as the environment was concerned, it was something that she, she and I shared similar views on. A lot of different behaviors, but on other things, it was, I really value that friendship that I have with her, uh, especially being in lower Manhattan where I don't, th- I mean, I'm sure there are Trump supporters around, but they won't say it out loud because it's, it, it, it would just be <laughs> asking for abuse. In the street. <laughs> yeah. One of the statements that someone said, uh, not the one I just talked about, but another one of the Trump supporters I spoke to. And she said, why do people who say they're all about tolerance, how come they're so mean? And Great point. Yeah, I was like, they, there's a lot of meanness. And when you're, when you're in a bubble, it doesn't seem mean. Well, I think that this is, this is 
the point that we have to pay attention to is the extreme right is fueled by the extreme left, and that's why the middle's disappearing. It's not because the right wing are more right wing or the left wing are left wing. Each one feeds the other. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the Antifa people who want to punch people in the face for saying that they, they and do punch people in the face for saying they voted for Trump are just making their, the case for the other side. Yeah. And we have to, you know, the willingness to, to embrace the ideas of others, not believe in them, not even agree with them, but to be willing to develop compassion, to be willing to develop empathy, to be willing to listen actively listen and say, that's interesting. I may not agree, but I'd love to know why you believe that. Tell me why that seems true to you. Tell me how you can see that. Why do you think that these thousands of scientists would fraudulently create this thing? Is, do you believe that this is a conspiracy by China or whatever it is? I, like, I'm fascinated to know that as opposed to you're an idiot and I'm going to punch you in the face or even saying stuff like that. Yeah, and it's an opportunity to learn. And people who, there's this big disconnect with people say, who say they're compassionate and say that, you know, they'll turn the other cheek and things like, things like that. And then when someone disagrees with them on an area that they think, there's this internal feeling of like, I'm right, you're wrong. And they just lose their ability. Like, you're like, but there's another human being. Well, they're wrong. And they're hurting people. And you're like, you could learn from them. And have you been wrong about something yourself in the past? Is, is it possible that there's something you could learn from them? Yeah. I mean, you know, people have asked, uh, you know, this, this philosophical questions, you know, if you go back in time, would you kill Hitler? And, you know, we, you know, we get these sort of conversations. All of us have had some sort of similar conversation. I don't know that I would go back and kill Adolf Hitler. I don't know that I could, but I would love to have had a conversation with him and mm-hmm. Chairman Mao and Che Guevara and Alexander the Great, and many of the people that we'd outright dismiss. Now, some of them were without doubt sociopathic individuals that you're never going to discover anything other than their own desire to control. And that's fine. But at least you understand that. Mm -hmm. But when I, because of my background in in uh, human dynamics and understanding how, how people are driven, we have to remember one thing, and that is this. The ego always wants to be right. There is no middle ground for your ego. It's right or wrong. And the thing that people resist the most is change, and change always means I have to admit that I'm wrong. That's why change is difficult. People say, why is change so difficult? Isn't it obvious? No, it's here's why. If I say I, if I change, I have to admit I was wrong. And the num- first rule of investment is never lose your initial investment. If you put five thousand into the stock and it goes to twenty five grand, and you end up and it starts to fall, the place you will bail is at five grand. You won't bail at twenty grand. You'll still be in hope it will go back up. You won't bail at fifteen grand. You'll still be hope it go back up. But the place you'll bail is at five grand because you've got to keep your investment. And that's exactly the same mentality we have with beliefs. I will not let go of my initial investment. So if I'm in this relationship with this person and I fought for this relationship because my mom, my dad, my friend said that he, she was an asshole, whatever negative term we want to use. But I said, no, I'm in love and I'm going to make this work. I'm going to stay in a miserable relationship because I don't want to be wrong. I will not lose my initial investment. So now transfer that over to belief in being a Republican, belief to being into being a, a Democrat, belief in climate change, belief in not in being a climate denier. You know that one of the people I worked with, Tony Mack, he's actually they're just making a documentary right now about his visit to Auschwitz. He was the head of the neo-Nazis in British Columbia and for the West Coast. He couldn't be more neo-Nazi, right? I mean, <laughs> uh, he, he, he took, Can- he took yeah. Canada to, to the Supreme Court twice. He was on Montel Williams twice. The only show that Montel Williams walked off was his. Tony's incredibly bright and was absolutely committed to being a Holocaust denier and that, you know, the Jews should have been wiped out and wanted to make British Columbia white only. 
He now runs Life After Hate. He talks about neo-compassionism. I helped him to, to come out of the movement, and he and I spoke at the UN together. And, it, we talk, and oftentimes when we talk, we talk about this understanding, this how you can't, it's so difficult to let go of what you believe to be true because in that moment, there's this psychological isolation and human beings need a tribe and we don't want to give that up. That kind of change is remarkable and it's beyond most people. We look up to these people and don't emulate them ourselves. And it's why... I, I'm probably thinking of like, why not? But it's exactly what it's, I mean, what you said is a big part of it is that we have to admit that we're wrong. We have to, it takes a lot of humility. I'm not particularly strong in humility. <laughs> well, I mean, the simple thing is anybody listening right now, you know, me, you included, I, you know, my hands up, I'm guilty. How many of us have left a relationship one, two, three, many years after we knew it was done? How many of us? We've all done it. We've all been in, in a relationship and go, this is not a good relationship. This does not bring out the best in me, does not bring out the best. And maybe even is destructive or maybe is abusive, but we stuck. Why? Because we need to belong. Human beings are tribal. We need to belong. And we need to be right. And when you pair those two things together, we end up with some pretty disastrous outcomes, including a far-right movement that is now the authoritarian movement that is now manifesting in the world. We have those kinds of leaders in South America and Brazil. We've got them in Venezuela. We've got them in Hungary. We've got the rise of them in France. They almost got stole the last election. We've got the rise of them in Britain. We've certainly got a dictatorial authoritarian leader in the US. Never, ever had a president before who would use a state of emergency to move his own political agenda forward. That is un unknown. This is what it's about. And you know, today's February 22nd, February 20th, 1939. I don't know if you know, there's this, this short that's up for an Oscar right now, a seven minute video. It's called A Night at the Garden. And it shows, it's footage of a, a Nazi, not neo-Nazi, full on Nazi, American Nazi party. I think it was called The Bund in Madison Square Garden. 20,000 Americans showed up and they're doing the full Heil salute. They got a big picture of, of George Washington behind as like, you know, their fascist mm -hmm. symbol. And it's, you know, 39. I think it said that at that time, they're building like the sixth concentration camp in Europe. And like, it can't happen here. It did happen here. Yes. And uh, I was reading an article and it said what stopped them was basically Pearl Harbor, which was you know, America went full on in one direction, the, you know, the direction we went in. That was because of something mostly unrelated, the Japanese. Yes. That stopped them, not an ideological, no, not persuasion or leadership or, or people coming around. It was getting Pearl Harbor invaded. And it's like, it's really crazy to, to it's crazy, except it's not crazy. It's historical to look That's at that. Point. Yeah. And, and for See, people that's to the say, point. and if, if we don't pay it, I mean, we all know the story. If we don't pay attention to history, we are destined to repeat it. And if we call them Nazis, we ignore, we miss that they're human, just like us, and they have the same emotional system as we do. They're not monsters. They, they're people that we disagree with, and they supported someone that, that I, you know, we disagree with. But plenty of people support them, and plenty of people, right? If, if they were, if you and I, if we were in that context might come out different. You know, uh, one of the analogies I used to give in one of my programs was if you were born as a white person, if you were born in 1910, 1920 in Alabama, are black people equal in intelligence to you? And I will ask a lefty, mm -hmm. you know, you are born as a white person in Alabama in 1910. Are black people and white people equal? And they go, yes. And I go, no, you, no, you've missed the context. You're born into an environment in 1910 in the South. The answer is no. You probably see black people as less intelligent, maybe part animal, certainly less than you in all kinds of ways. Now, I get that you don't see that today, but there is something called, this is what you have to understand, bio environmental psychology, 
right? And it's also known as epigenetics. Your body changes, your brain changes based on your environment. And so, of course, your freaking mind does. And if you're surrounded by 10,000 people who are all telling you that those people are N-words and that they are less than human, you don't question that. If you grew up in a village, in an isolated village where two and two equals five, and you go to the store and something's five, you give two and two, and nobody argues. It's only when you leave that environment that you suddenly go, oh, maybe it's not. So the thing to understand is that everybody's working out of the context of their original environment of beliefs. And if you've grown up in that, whatever that is, if you grew up in, in lower Manhattan or you grew up in, in, in uh, SoCal, there's a pretty good chance you're a liberal because everybody around you is like-minded. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't grow you. It doesn't give you deep depth of compassion and empathy. It doesn't connect you to a divine consciousness, a universal consciousness that says, hold on a sec, strip away the skin, we're all the same. Strip away the uniform, we're all the same. We're just impacted by the environment and we've decided that that's the truth. But we don't call our beliefs beliefs, we call them the truth. And that's where we fall down. Yes. To believe something is to believe that it's true. Absolutely. And yeah, I have this thing in class. It's actually the exercise that my class is doing right now at NYU is to write down their beliefs for a week. When you notice a belief, write it down. And so I point out to them, I ask them in class, is the, is the earth, in what, sh- what shape is the planet? Is it flat? Is it round? And they're like, it's round. I was like, how do you know? And they're like, it's obvious. And I'm like, all right, forget about pictures of earth from space. Like they can be doctored. What, you know, what evidence do you have that it's round? And they don't have any. And they're like, well, people figured it out a long time ago. I was like, okay, maybe it's a conspiracy. How do you know? Right. And it takes them a long time to get to where it's basically what people have told them. And well, people tell a lot of people a lot of things. And now, and another thing is they can't separate that because they're like, if something's true, then it's not a belief. It's a fact. I was like, let's just say it's a fact. You still believe it, but they, it's really tough to get that. And a belief is something inside your head. It may be a fact in the outside world. It may be something that is absolutely true. And maybe you have access to absolute truth. You still believe it. And they're like, no, I don't. <laughs> right. If you believe it, then you can do something. You can change a belief. So the thing I, the thing I, the way that I have people grasp this is if it's true, it doesn't need you to believe in it. It's that simple. It doesn't need you to believe in it. But if, but if it's a belief, it needs, it needs you to believe in it. Mm-hmm. So people say, well, give me an example. Okay, is gravity true? People say, yeah, I guess. And I go, is it consistently true? I don't know. Well, if you were on the moon, is gravity the same as it is here on planet Earth? No. If you're in space, is it the same? No. So is it consistently true? I guess not. Yes, it is. It's <laughs> consistently true. It always exists. It doesn't need you to believe in it. It just ranges in, in how, how the strength uh, of much it, yeah. pull there is to it, right? The strength of it, right. But it is universally true. So we, okay, that, I don't care if you believe in it or not. It's irrelevant, right? If you don't believe in gravity and you want to walk off the end of a building, all the best, right? <laughs> right? All the best. Don't forget to wear the parachute. So, however, the willingness, and this is, I'll give you a great example. Many years ago, uh, in one of my programs, we used to have a program called Authentic Life Mastery. and looked at four quadrants of life, body, mind, emotion, soul. And so we'd get to these, in the soul part, we'd really examine the deep philosophical questions of life, like, why am I here? What is the meaning of my life? What is the meaning of life? And so one of the things we examined was, we previously did another program, but at a deeper level was beliefs. And so I said, who would like to be the demonstration for this? And this guy puts his hand up. His name was Franco and a great guy, very bright, terrific guy. And I said to him, what religion are you? And he said, I'm a Catholic. And I said, great. Why? And he goes, well, because I am. And I said, no, no, but why? Mm-hmm. He goes, oh, okay. He goes, cause I go to Catholic church. I believe in the Catholic faith. My mom's Catholic. My dad's Catholic. And I said, so you are Catholic because you fell out of a Catholic vagina. You had a sperm donor who was a Catholic. You are surrounded by a Catholic environment, and you follow the rituals of Catholicism. And he goes, well, it's more than that. And I go, okay, what is it? And he, you know, by the end, I said, 
I don't know if you're a Catholic. All I know is you've adopted a set of beliefs. My question is, are you a Catholic? And he was really pissed off with me. And I didn't see him for about three, four months. And I bumped into him literally on the street. And, and you know, he's a great guy. And I really like him. And I always liked him. But I challenged the crap out of it because I want had to help. Uh-huh. And I bumped into, and he was genuinely joyous to see me. And, and uh-huh. I didn't expect that based on the previous conversation. And I said to him, hey, how you doing? He's like, I am so great. Thank you. And I said, yeah, well, last time I saw you, you didn't seem like yeah. that way. And he said, no, he said, he said uh, you didn't upset me. You royally pissed me off. Uh-huh. I said, oh, tell me about it. He goes, that whole thing around Catholicism. And I said, yeah. And he goes, but I, he says, I've been thinking about you for the last couple of weeks and I wanted to get in touch with you. And I said, well, here I am. He goes, because I want to thank you. And I said, really? Tell me why. And he says, because I'm a Catholic. <laughs> right? It now was a choice. Yeah. And, and I said, tell me more about that. And he said, as the Catholic I am today versus three months ago, I can challenge it and I can question it. And that is the distinction. If you can't challenge your own beliefs... You are insecure and you're holding on to something you've adopted in order to be a member of a tribe. But if you can challenge your own beliefs, if you can question it, if you can say, well, I happen to believe that the fact is that the world is round, but let me question that. Let me really take a look at that. People have asked me, do you you think we landed on the moon? Or do you think that that was done in, in some studio? And my answer is yes. And they go, what do you mean? Yes. Yes, I think we landed on the moon. Yes, I think it was done in a studio. The, both of those things, I can hold both in my mind. I'm big enough to do that. I can hold both of those things in my mind. There's a ton of evidence that we did land on the moon, and there's a ton of conspiracy stuff that shows it's a pretty good chance it was, it was manufactured. My question is, does it impact me? Either way, does it impact me? If it matters enough to me, then I should dig deeper into that. But I'm willing to question either side. Mm-hmm. Are you willing to question what you believe? Because if you're not, when you're looking at the environment or you're looking at leadership, which is my area, or you're looking at anything like that, and you're saying this is right, this is wrong, you're in trouble because you've not broad enough to actually lead. And you can't lead from a narrow perspective. You need to be strong. You need to be, be purposeful but you need to be open. And that is something that most people can't put those two things together. I have to be strong and on purpose, but I have to be open. Yes, agility. Feeling inspired? Do you like hearing others acting that you're not alone? Go to joshuaspodek.com slash podcast to hear other interviews, but even more valuable. Join the growing community of people who care enough to act, not just talk. Read the list of people who have taken on personal challenges and then commit to one yourself. Don't be surprised if you end up loving it, changing more, and finding people following you without you even trying. That's what happens when you improve your life by living by your values. And I want to bring this, this all got prompted by me asking about how your, the last podcast episodes that we did together, how that impacted you. And we've gone off a lot. I want to bring it back to there. Was this all connected to, I mean, we started by talking about the political climate. Mm-hmm. Now that I just started talking about it, and I apologize if we're if I'm going off topic from what we were just saying, or if we're returning, and you can go wherever you want. It's your show. You're in charge. <laughs> so you you have an exercise that you give people, or at least have given people at times, which is to eat a meal fully present, using all their senses. And you did that exercise yourself when you were at 90 kilometers with your car, mm-hmm. the Jaguar that was your aspiration for most of your life until you got it, and then it was. Yep. Something very valuable for you. And yes, it was. At 90 kilometers, with a limit in the month of 100 kilometers, you were like, I couldn't, I'm, if I got in, if I started driving, it would, it would be at least 11. <laughs> and so you did that exercise with the car, if I remember right, that you said that there's the stitching and the wood and the paneling and all the engineering. And you got out of that experience that as much value as you might've gotten from driving it. And that that told you, that you didn't need to to drive the car and that meant that you didn't need to own the car necessarily to give you the joy that you could get otherwise. Mm-hmm. That That is what I've been telling people. <laughs> and I hope I didn't get it too far off. No, I mean, let, let's put things in context for somebody who maybe hasn't heard the other shows. So I grew up in a ghetto, extremely poor, 
in an environment that was poverty stricken, surrounded by violence, uh, addiction, and crime. And as a poor kid who often, you know, was hungry, would my buddy and I would go to the main road that ran into the city into Manchester and we would sit on the on, literally on the curb and watch the cars go by and there were certain cars that would go by that were wow because for us they said wealth you know mm-hmm. once in a while there'd be a big American car a big Ford LTD would go by and we'd be like wow because it just looks so huge on the road mm-hmm. um, a Rolls Royce which was very beautiful but sort of said to me, even as a kid, said to me, royalty. It said you had royal blood. It said uh, it was it was a, an affirmation of the class system. Mm-hmm. But a Jaguar, a Jaguar was an affirmation of the aspirational system. It was an affirmation of that somebody could go from poverty to wealth. It was it was it was a statement of so those people were wealthy but they'd earned it or they'd grown it. Now, all this is bullshit. <laughs> you know, <laughs> as a kid, I made that up, all of it. But you know, and then I had gotten a, a ride in a Jaguar as a kid and was like, wow. And I remember the the smell of the leather and all those amazing things and how quiet it was inside and all that. So yeah, it was this dream that I had had that I would one day own a Jag. And I'd been in lots of jacks since uh, since being a kid, but I'd never owned one. And then uh, we were looking to get a new vehicle, and uh, we were watching um, one of the new James Bond movies with Daniel Craig. And we were watching that, and you know they're driving the XJ, and I'm like, oh, "That's the car! That's the car!" Uh-huh. And so that is what I went and bought. And oh my god, I mean, I sat in it, and it was luscious. The smell of the leather, the the walnut paneling, the smoothness, and as my mate said, when I when you put the indicator on, even the indicator sounds wealthy. That's what he said. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and was it also taking you back to your childhood? Totally mm-hmm. took me back there, and, and was so reaffirming of this horse that I've made. It was complete horse, but you know, it's like it was this affirmation of it. And I always loved driving it. My wife liked me, yeah, you know. And my wife, I'd say, should we go in, should we go in the Jag? She'd go, no, I want to go in the Kia. She has a Kia. She uh-huh. likes her car. You know, it's very, very economical. Okay. But my, when I would go for a drive, I wanted uh-huh. to go in my Jag. And it was uh-huh. beautiful. And then we had this conversation. And you challenged me to look at, okay, I mean, you know, you were taking buses and trains for 9,000 miles to get to a conference. <laughs> <laughs> to I did that again. 25 bucks. <laughs> that was to go to Salt Lake City at the time. And then I've since been to LA and back by train and bus. Exactly, right? Yeah. So, okay, you know, I, I'm, I like challenge. I'm good with challenge. Let, let's go for that. And let me see what this is really all about. And so, you know, I think, we, uh, I think my commitment to myself was, was it 100, 100K in a month or something like 100 miles in a month or something? Uh, I think it was 100 kilometers in a month. No more than that. And you took pictures before and after of yeah, the odometer. Took pictures of the odometer before, and then I took pictures, as you said, at, at ninety, and went. Oh, if I get in it, I'm going to drive more. Even uh-huh. driving up the street, it's going to go over it. No, no. So I had to leave it. Well, the, here's the update. I've never driven the car since. Wow. It's been parked in my garage since last April. Uh-huh. It now has storage insurance on it. That's all it has on it. In fact, in November. Uh, my wife went in to start it and you can't even open the doors because the battery's so dead that it won't even unlock the doors. So in the spring, I will actually be selling it. Wow. And so have you, have you gone back in to sit in it? Oh no, you can't open the door. I can't get in it. <laughs> I can't get in it. I was wondering if you did that exercise again and like got that experience again. No. So that, that was the last time I got in, like I said, was when I took the took the second photograph and I sat in and I just, I really just took in what is this experience? As you said, you know, like feeling it and being with it and realizing that I don't, you know, it, it's a false idea of representation of who I am. I've never been a materialistic guy. I'm not that guy at all. I don't wear expensive jewelry. I don't have a big flashy house or any of those kinds of things. I don't care about that stuff. I don't care about 
all the big fancy cars. My friends are all into Ferraris. And I'm like, I, you know, I don't give a shit. That for me was a representation from my childhood. And what I realized is it belongs in my childhood. Huh. It's okay. It belongs in my childhood. Do I like the car still? Absolutely. We went down there the other night, a friend of mine, I was driving my friend home in the Kia and we went down <laughs> to the garage and, you know, and I, and he said, oh, that's your Jag. And I was like, yeah. And he's like, uh, can we get in? And I go, no, because I can't open the battery's too flat. And he goes, it is a beautiful vehicle. And I go, it is. It's styling of it is magnificent. And I said, and it's even better inside, but we ain't getting in it. It's okay. No, didn't miss it. Got in, drove the Kia. <laughs> that's, I, I was wondering, and man, you do not disappoint. <laughs> I mean, it, there's a, a a whole bunch of different things, and I would not have predicted this one. And I love hearing it, mainly because of your. It's again, it's not the car; it's you, and your. You've used this as an opportunity to grow, to examine yourself, to understand, to challenge yourself. To uh, I'm sure the the thought has crossed your mind of driving it. Actually, I'm not sure about that. How's how's the mental experience been? Oh, absolutely. It has. Uh, many times after I parked it in April, uh, particularly in the summer when the weather was nice and I can open the roof and, you know, it was like, yeah, it'd be nice. <laughs> but I don't need to do that. I don't need to do that. Just, no, don't need to do it. So and it was not, it's not like a massive discipline. So don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. It's not a massive discipline. It's just understanding that all the things of our lives, you know, are a representation of something. And this is what most people don't understand. The clothes you wear on your back are a representation of some piece of your identity. And, and it's important for you to look at, if you are self-aware, you want to be self-aware, is to look at what is the representation of a thing. Why do you drink Starbucks coffee as opposed to drinking Dunkin' Donuts? Why? Is it more prestigious to drink Starbucks? It actually is. Do you care? No, I actually, personally, I have friends who hate Starbucks. They don't like the taste of it. They don't drink it. I actually really like it. If I drink a coffee, I have a Starbucks, uh-huh. you know, but I don't give a shit about the prestige of it. There are other things like I have friends who, you know, as I said, have a Ferrari and a Maserati, beautiful vehicles. I would never own one. Don't care. I have friends who wear Rolex watches. I used to have five Rolexes. Every one of them was a fake. <laughs> and people would say to me all the time, oh, that's a beautiful watch. I go, yeah, it's a fake. I bought it in Hong Kong for 20 bucks. And they're <laughs> like, really? And I'm like, yeah. And they go, why would you admit it? Why wouldn't I admit it? Why wouldn't I admit it? I like the look of it, but I would never pay two grand for a watch. Are you crazy? I, it doesn't, it doesn't. I know some people that really matters. It doesn't to me. I had a Patek Philippe that I bought for 20 bucks and uh, I wore it until, until one of the hands fell off, which I don't think would happen for an actual yeah. yeah, many years ago, I actually bought a bunch of them in New York uh, um, on a Sunday at the market, on the street markets, I think on 16th, and I just bought a pile of them. <laughs> so it, I feel like there's a big, there's a beyond the car here. I mean, the representation, when you were saying representation, I was, I couldn't help but put the word meaning there, like the meaning behind these things. Yep. And you can... This is one of the big things I've I found is that you can get the meaning of something without the thing. And if you substitute the thing for the meaning, it, you can often get yourself in a big mess. That, whereas if you, can, if you can see the meaning and you can get that anyway, if you can develop your own ways of, of creating and bringing meaning into your life, you don't need so much stuff anymore. And then you get freedom and liberty. I mean, to me, it's free, like less stuff to me, I associate now with freedom because it gives me freedom to move around and things like that. Mm-hmm. I fully agree with you. I mean, you know that my work is uh, helping individuals, high-level uh, individuals, leaders, uh, entrepreneurs, athletes, actors, whoever it might be, people in entertainment, and companies in becoming purpose-driven. But really, at the simplest level, what is that? Is actually finding the meaning that matters to you. Finding, you know, people say, "Oh, we've got our meaning." No, you don't. You got some bullshit mission statement but finding the real meaning for you. What is the meaning of something? And as Bandler said, nothing has any meaning but the meaning we give it. And sometimes we give things terrible meaning and sometimes we give things wonderful meaning, but we add, we put the meaning in a place that doesn't really matter, doesn't enrich our lives. So we put the meaning in, in looking 
you know, having facelifts that make us look like we've been saran wrapped because we put so much meaning in youth. Or we put the meaning in the fact that I drive a Jag so I'm successful. We put the meaning in, you know, things that don't matter. And so that's why the question is, what is the meaning I've applied to this? Mm-hmm. When you look to that, you realize that meaning is, is installed. And so if it's installed, it can be elicited. So I, it, maybe it was unconsciously installed that the JAG meant success, you know, because I was a kid. It was unconsciously installed in me. And as an adult, I suddenly have this attraction. But I can also elicit that meaning and go, well, hold on a second. What is the meaning of this for me? What does it say about me? What does it tell me? And when I look at that, then I go, well, is that true? Is it true for me? Which is different than is that true? Is it true for me? And does it really matter? Because here's the thing. If you get meaning from something, and if meaning is installed and you can install it, if you have the free will to install it, can't you install the meaning somewhere else? People go, what do you mean? Have you ever seen somebody be hypnotized and believe they're a chicken? Or, some, or believe they're a dog. And they go, yeah. Well, what is that? It's an installation. So you can install meaning. So this pen means I'm successful, as opposed to a Jaguar. They go, but I can't believe that as much. No, you can't, because you have, you have a system called the media, whatever form of media that is, who are compounding your meaning. So in order for you to have this have the same meaning as a Ferrari, a Jag, or whatever it might be, you have to install massive amounts of meaning. But the more you do it, the more meaning it will have. And one of the ways to install meaning is gratitude. Gratitude, compassion, empathy, but more than anything, curiosity. You can only find meaning if you get curious. And most of us give up curiosity in favor of holding on to beliefs. All right. All this time I, I wanted to ask you, now I have to ask about, all right, I'm going to give you two questions. Pick which one you want to go with. <laughs> so is what you were doing, some, what, what happened with the Jaguar? Is that, is it something you've, you do these things often or is this a step up? I, I would imagine this is something that happens rarely, but maybe with you, it's something that happens commonly and that this was just another manifestation of something you often do. And then the other question would be about curiosity and empathy and compassion being the ways to create meaning. Is that a fair way of putting it? Sure. I'd leave it to you which, which question you want to answer or, t- or go for both or talk about something else if you want. Uh, I'll answer them both. I'll give you short answers. And then if you want more on one of them, I can do that or both. So first of all, I'm committed to challenging myself um, on a regular basis. And this is something that I've always done, but I think it was best articulated by my friend Mark Levy, who is uh, also a New Yorker, a good fr- very good friend of mine. And he said, when somebody asks you what you're doing and you tell them, and they are really inspired by what you tell them, but you're not, you're not challenging yourself enough. Huh. And I was like, oh, damn, that is too good. I like that. <laughs> That's very good. So... You know, I can often tell people what I'm doing. People are very inspired. And I'm like, yeah, you know, it's every day. So I need to push myself to get outside of my own comfort zone. Because as we've talked about before, uh, courage is subjective. And so what's easy for me is you, you might see as very courageous, but it's still easy for me. And it's actually not courageous unless it's hard for me. So that's why that challenge piece matters. Is that saying that it was, or saying so it was a challenge for you and it was a challenge like you were looking for? Yes, absolutely. Okay. So that's what that did. It gave me another another way to challenge myself and push myself and another example of, okay, let's find out. Let's find out. It's okay for me to, and this is the other thing, it's okay for me to fail. It's like, because mm-hmm. it's just me challenging me. Okay, I can fail, but I can't not learn. I can fail, but I can't not learn. Mm-hmm. So I can fail, but I got to learn something from it. If I did, the only failure I ever have is if I haven't learned, then I'm just a dumbass. I'm going to repeat the cycle and I've been a dumbass many times so so it's not on anybody else um and in the other context is that you can find you already have meaning for everything so i just want everybody to get that you already have meaning for everything anything you're doing in your life you have meaning because human beings are meaning seeking machines 
But the problem is you haven't questioned the meaning. And you can't question the meaning without curiosity. curiosity. Uh-huh. And if you approach questioning the meaning, even with curiosity, but without empathy and compassion, you're still going to get back to right and wrong. And the only way you can have meaning and embrace other people's meaning is by having empathy and compassion. Yeah. So I'm picking up that it's not, these aren't absolute things. These are relationship things. These are learning from others is how you can develop new beliefs and new views of the world. I have to learn this, that sometimes, often a guest will say something and it makes me think. And part of me wants to like ponder and think for a bit, but I'm just gonna have to listen to that part several times and not put too much dead air on for the listeners. Uh, <laughs> going back to what you did, I, you know, one of the things for me, people think it's a big deal for not flying. And it was at the beginning. And it still is occasionally. I mean, sometimes there's something I really want to go to. and But then I also think, I love where I am. And I can't be everywhere. And if I'm not here, if I'm not there, I'm here. If I'm not, wherever I am, I'm not somewhere else. Right. And what it comes down to, one of the things it comes down to is that it's, it's not what I'm not doing. That's not what I'm thinking about. It's what I replace it with. And did you replace your Jaguar with something else or your experience of it with something else? Or I don't mean like, did you drive a different car? I mean, like for me, I mean, yes, I took the train across the country, but that's not the same thing. That wasn't an actually an adventure thing. I replaced it with, one of the things I replaced it with was Frances Hesselbein. I don't know if you've met her. I presume you know who she is, but she's, I mean, I, I came to her through Marshall Goldsmith, a mentor of mine, and now she became a mentor. She's his mentor. And she, I shouldn't say this on the recording. She was born during World War I. And lived through prohibition, lived through uh, the Great Depression, lived through World War One, uh, World War Two, and so forth. And I'm thinking, I, I like different cultures. Well, she's in my city. Talk about a different culture. And so one of the things that replaced flying was a blossoming friendship with Frances Hesselbein. And it's it's a wonder because meeting her. I mean, I won't go into all the details, but you can imagine it's a tremendous experience. Peter Drucker called her the best leader in America, and so I get to learn from her. That's one of the things I replaced it with. And I have that here. And I presume everyone, wherever they are, has a reason why they live where they are, that they like something about it. So they might not like the diversity that New York City has, for example, which I do like. But if they don't like it, hopefully they like where they are. And if they don't, I hope they realize there's a problem. Anyway, were the things that... I, I, think that, I think that, you know, there's a saying in the speaker world that a wise man is a fool in his own village. And what it means is that people, you can't expect people to value you in your own in your own village uh, certainly in your own family oftentimes you're an idiot just because you know you're you're my little brother or you're my big you know whatever it is right um but i think that it's also true in our cities if i am speaking in vancouver where i live he lives here i'll catch him next time you know uh, whereas if i'm speaking in new york it's a different story it's a full full attendance I'm speaking in Dallas, it's full attendance. I mean, you know, whatever it might be, because there's that out-of-town value. And I think that that extends beyond us personally. What I mean by that is that we don't, like, you know, you look for this person in your own city and you have this amazing relationship. And if you lived in, make it up, uh, Wisconsin or, or, or California somewhere, you know, and you, you suddenly would, and you found out this woman, you would travel across the country just to go spend an hour with her, right? And and without any think about it. But there are people who know where she lives who go, yeah, you know, I'll get to her eventually. Mm-hmm. And we don't do it because it's part of us is the fact that we do need challenge. We want challenge. And so we, it, if something's too easy and too convenient, we're pretty lazy. So, it, you know, this is one of the great things, Josh, that you've done is you've grasped that part of yourself that says, huh, what if I'm here? What if I'm actually present here? What is that's available to me in New York, where I live? You know, there's a lot of diversity. There's a lot of wisdom here. What if it's here? What if what I'm looking for in Dallas or in L.A. or in Cincinnati or in Portland or wherever it might be is actually right here? Because this is the human condition. We go looking somewhere else for what is always right here within ourselves. 
We always think it's an external journey, but the hero's journey is an internal one. And so start pulling the, start pulling the circle closer. And so maybe instead of traveling to Africa to meet that person or Australia or wherever it is, what if you could meet some version of that in your own town? What if you start asking that question? Let me like, oh, I, you know what? I need to meet a neo-Nazi. Now I could go to, uh, I don't know, let's say the UK or, you know, or Germany or somebody to meet a neo-Nazi. But like, I wonder who's the head of the neo-Nazis in New York. That's a conversation I'd like to find out. And, and yes, the one from London might be very prominent, but the one from, from New York might be a bit quieter because they live in New York. But you could probably find them and you could probably find out why they believe what they believe. And you could probably have a freaking incredible conversation and find out things that expand your own mind and open you up. You don't have to end up agreeing, but you do get the opportunity to be curious, to be compassionate, to be empathetic, and potentially shift meaning. Yeah, I want to add one thing. I want to distinguish something that you said, I asked myself these things. It's actually slightly different. I forced myself into acting on them. It's the behavior that that made the change, not the thinking about. Like, I didn't think to myself when I said, am I going to go without flying? What am I going to do? I said, I value this and I'm going to live by that value. And then I had to fill in the gaps. And so it led to that. And that's something that I've learned is that when you have a value and you're not living by it, well, let me say that in the first person. When I have a value and I'm not living by it, when I force myself to live by it or not to live by the, uh, some, when I'm violating it, then, and not to do the violation, then I have to replace it with something. And that's generally going to be something I value more. And that ipso facto, like that is improving my life. If I take if I increase the things that I value in my life, that's a better life. And the fact that I'm not flying is not, that's, that, that's the outside world. Internally, it's a better life. That's been my experience. And that's why this podcast is Thank about- Thank you for saying that because I want people to really get, get that. You just said two things that are incredibly profound, incredibly insightful that people should really grasp. One is who gives a shit what you believe or what you value demonstrate it with your behavior. That's number one, which is what you just said, right? You, you know, if you don't take the action, who gives a crap? You've got to take the action. You've got to make it a truth by, by living it. Right? Some of the best Christians I know are Buddhists. <laughs> uh-huh. right? I've often said that because they're living in a way that is that of the Nazarene, but you know, they, they claim to be Buddhists. They just like the label. But they, you know, and some of the Christians I know are, you know, condemning gay people or, you know, something else, right? So it's like, hold on a second. Uh, as the as the armband says, what would Jesus do? It's the action that counts. And that for me is, you know, and, but the other thing you said that I think is really important is it's not just the action, because when you take the action, your mind says, lost. I've now lost something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? And what you're approaching it with is gain. How is it making my life better? And I think there's so few people who grasp that, that how can living this value make my life better? How can that actually give me something I actually want more than and that's, that? Whatever that's been that this is. discovery. I couldn't do this podcast until I found that, until that, until that experience came to me, that not eating packaged food it's not the not packaging, it's the delicious. And I'm sharing, and, and the only way I know to get there is experience. And so I'm sharing, I'm trying in this podcast to share, to give people the opportunity to experience that themselves so that they see that, now people may have different experiences that I don't know what's going to happen in their lives, but I hope that they'll find pretty much across the board, spending more time with trees and eating more food that's like, you know, you know the farmer that made it and less polluting it less of those things tends to lead to things like spending more time with people that matter to you that me and or less time and finding out that it was a mistake or you know like just living by your values more exactly and the the minor effect of not getting to europe as much you know what i'm replacing that one with the, I, last summer i started learning to sail and my goal is to make it to Europe this summer and Asia next summer, but we'll see. It's like, I'm not going to find a boat. I got a crew on other people's boats, but just going out on the water mm-hmm. is it's a whole other world. And, and yes. totally gone to me. It totally um, absent from, a, uh, not, it's not absent. I was ignorant of it. 
Sure. And what does it take? I, I took some lessons that were themselves great fun. I'm still way under what I would have paid for the flying. So I'm like saving money and sailing, sailing. Pe- humans have sailed for, I don't know, 7,000 years, something like I looked it up and I forgot. <laughs> yeah. So it's a very timeless thing. It's not like a, a fad. Anyway, we're getting to an hour and I, I want to, I don't want to go too much over because like some people, before they listen to it, they look at the, how long it is and they, they <laughs> might listen. And I suspect that we'll, we'll record more. I'm not sure. Is there anything you didn't think to ask that's worth bringing up? No, I, th- I mean, I think it was a great conversation and uh, invariably we've gone off the rails, which is great, um, <laughs> in, into, you know, what, what you and I would hope matters, particularly to, to these listeners. I mean, I think that, you know, as I said, my work is about purpose and it's about helping people to find purpose. But it really, what that means is, you know, uh, you've heard me say before, I, my job is to, when I work with somebody, is to bring home the disenfranchised parts of themselves. And very often, by disenfranchising parts of ourselves, we have become successful, quote, unquote, that we've got the right cow, we've got the right amount of money, the right investments, etc. And because it allowed us to be very focused. But there's a point in life, and, and Pathasati Jay, one of my great teachers, taught me this, that, that the path narrows as you get more evolved, it narrows, it keeps narrowing and narrowing and narrowing, and then it opens and expands the other direction where it becomes about giving to the world. And so for me, the work that we do is about bringing you back, bringing all the disenfranchised parts back so that you can go from successful, which is the narrow part, to becoming fulfilled and creating a legacy that shifts into the world. And you can't do that, with again, without empathy, compassion, love, and meaning. Definitely curiosity. <laughs> I'm I'm half inclined to end it there. I, I often like to ask, is there a message you'd like to give directly to the listeners? Same sign off as I do on my show. Stay curious, my friends. Stay curious. Dove Darren, thank you very much. My absolute pleasure. I don't think I have to tell you how pleasantly surprised I am by Dove's results. By contrast, overwhelmingly, people talking about environmental action talk about what they're already doing, what they've already done, justifying staying where they are. I do it too. The biggest thing I hear of Dove is how much he enjoyed what he did. He acted deliberately on his values and improved his life. That is, he first chose the values he wanted to act on. Then he acted on them and figured out how to make it happen. If you go the other way, if you try to plan and analyze how to make it work and then act, there's a decent chance you'll be planning and analyzing for a long time, maybe forever. Also note that the environmental impact is, for the measurable effect on his life, smaller than the emotional and behavioral changes. So yes, he has less car, but the emotional and behavioral changes, I read as improvements, bigger improvements than what he's given up. In that way, he improved his life. After aspiring from his childhood in the ghetto, he didn't need the car. He didn't want the car. And I can't help but comment that he and I have become friends. I mean, on other things too, but this as well. This keeps happening. People acting on their environmental values always seem to create community, to connect with people, often family, often people closest to them. So I ask you, what meaning and what relationships are you missing out on by not acting on your environmental values? A lot of people assume that if I'm going to lead someone to change their behavior, if they're not already doing it, it must be something they don't want to do. So I must be getting them to do something they don't want to do. So I must be hurting a relationship. That's what happens if you tell people what to do. If you start by asking them, what do they care about? On this podcast, I try to ask guests, What does the environment mean to you? And I go back and forth until they feel comfortable sharing something inside. It's what they care about. When you act on what they care about, when you support them in a non-judgmental way, starting from where they are, not where you want them to be or you think they should be or the New York Times says it should be, but where they are, it's amazing how far people go. I would not have expected someone to get rid of their car. inspired to, then act. Go to joshuaspodak.com slash podcast and click to commit to your personal challenge so you can inspire others. Value means better and worse, and living by your values means living better by your values. You may struggle at first, but it's the hero's journey from living by others' values to living by yours. People say that little things add up. I won't argue against it, but what I find counts is acting. Doing something, anything, starts that mindset shift from the debilitating others should act first or making excuses to the empowering I can make a difference and 
Living by my values improves my life. I don't have to wait for others to act first. I'm looking for leaders, people who will bring what works here in this podcast to communities I haven't reached. Billions of people want to change their behavior. There's room for leadership from personal leadership of just yourself to whatever scale you want. Start by acting and changing yourself. Go to joshuaspodak.com slash podcast and commit to your personal challenge.